Welcome to the Global Treasures Podcast. I'm Abigail Vaca. And I'm Keith Perthium. We're two travelers with a passion for exploring world heritage sites that have been designated as having outstanding cultural value to humanity by UNESCO, a Bureau of the United Nations. We'll spend each episode exploring these places, their history, the people who built them, and who now work to preserve them for all our benefit. What makes the concept of World Heritage Sites really unique is the idea that these places belong to all people, no matter where they physically live. There are 1,199 sites across the world and more being added each year. We're going to release these episodes in the order by year these sites were originally added to the list, starting with the first sites designated in 1978. With that out of the way, let's get started. In this episode, Keith and I will be introducing you to Mesa Verde National Park, located in Mesa Verde, Colorado, in the United States. It sits in the southwestern part of the state and is home to over a thousand species of animals, including several species you'll only find in the park, and boasts over 4,700 archaeological sites. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm extremely proud of the work the United States has done with its park system. The National Park System is truly spectacular, and I am incredibly excited to have our first look at the parks through the lens of Mesa Verde. One of my personal heroes, Teddy Roosevelt, signed the law protecting Mesa Verde, and I cannot wait to dive into this. So this park has a rich history. For over 700 years, the ancestral Pueblo people built large communities on the mesas and in the cliffs of Mesa Verde. Today, The park protects the heritage of 26 tribes and allows visitors a glimpse into the past. There are over 600 dwellings with famous buildings such as Balcony House, Long House, Spruce Tree House, and Step House. These constructions range from simple one-room storage units to complex villages of more than 150 rooms. So the park is 52,000 acres along the Colorado Plateau. It's a semi-arid area with an average annual precipitation of only about 18.4 inches. So as Abigail mentioned in the intro, this park supports a ton of wildlife, both resident and migratory animals, birds, reptiles, fish, and invertebrates. Some species that have disappeared elsewhere are actually still here because of their protected status. Examples of this are peregrine falcons, the Mexican spotted owl, and the cliff palace milkfetch, which is actually a plant endemic to the park and found nowhere else in the world. As you can imagine, the human history of this place spans thousands of years. Our review of the history will start in about the 500s, when the first pit houses and signs of permanent habitation started to appear. What's a pit house? A pit house is a house that is dug out of the ground to help avoid the harsh weather. And a roof is put over the pit held up by these log beams. These were actually common in the American West. So in the mid-700s, people in this area began grouping houses together to form compact villages. This practice continued, and by the 1100s, an era known as the Classical Pueblo period started. This is when the construction of extensive complexes of pueblos began in earnest. The cliff dwellings were chiefly built during the last, oh, about 75 to 100 years during this time. The people lived in the dwellings sheltered by the caves, and then farmed the mesa top above them. Abigail, I think you found a mystery here when you were researching this, right? Sort of. So, around the year 1300, the ancestral Puebloan people migrated away from Mesa Verde. 
Historians and archaeologists aren't exactly sure why this was, and there are a lot of possible reasons for this migration. So, for the time being, this will remain a mystery. So, human history goes a bit quiet until 1765, when Don Juan Maria de Rivera, under orders from New Mexico Governor Tomas Velez Cajupin, led what was probably the first expedition of white men northwest from New Mexico. Rivera and his men saw ancient ruins, but made no reference in their journals that can be traced back to Mesa Verde specifically. Almost a hundred years later, in 1859, there was the Great Colorado Gold Rush. Professor J.S. Newberry makes the first known written mention of Mesa Verde during this time. In fact, he was probably the first to officially use the name Mesa Verde. From the 1870s to the 1880s, several of the important cliff dwellings were discovered, or I should say, rediscovered. In 1874, pioneer photographer William Henry Jackson, who is famous for his depictions of the American West, was photographing in the mountains when he met a man named John Moss, a miner who had spent several years ranching and exploring the Mesa Verde region. So Moss offered to guide Jackson to the ancient sites that he and his friend found. Moss led him down into the canyon to the now-famous Two-Story House, and that's where he took the first-ever pictures of the cliff dwellings in the Mesa Verde region. This would go a long way in helping bring prominence to the area. Hey, Abigail, I have a joke about a canyon, by the way. You have a joke for everything, and that's generous. So I went into a canyon, and I shouted in hopes that I would hear my echo. It was a resounding success. Oh, gosh, that took me a second. So getting back to the history, in 1875, the second cliff dwelling in the area to be named was 16 Window House. William H. Holmes, the leader of a geological government survey, discovered and named the site found in Mancos Canyon. A few years later, in 1880, Chief Ore of the Tabaguchi Band of the Ute tribe negotiated a treaty in Washington, D.C. that included the establishment of a reservation in the Mesa Verde region. This will become important a little bit later, as this reservation designation would make it difficult to make this area a national park later on. Shortly after, the prospector S.E. Osborne actually spent the winter in the canyons of Mesa Verde and later wrote about what he had seen. Many believe that he was the first documented visitor to enter the now famous Balcony House. His name and the date March 20th, 1884, are actually carved in a nearby dwelling in Lower Soda Canyon. Despite covering hundreds of years of history, it wasn't until 1886 when it was suggested the park be designated as a national park. The first known suggestion that was in writing appeared in the Denver Tribune Republican in December of 1886. The editor talked about being concerned that vandals were destroying the sites and that the area needed federal or state protection. Two years later, in 1888, two men named Richard Wetherill and his brother-in-law, Charles Mason, rode out in search of lost cattle with their Ute guide. On this trip, they discovered the now-famous Spruce Tree House and Square Tower House. Starting in 1889, over a 15-month period, Richard Wetherill and his brother explored the Mesa Verde ruins and reported to have entered 182 cliff dwellings, 
and 106 in Navajo Canyon alone. On December 20th of that year, their father, Benjamin, wrote a letter to the Smithsonian Institute and proposed that the Mancos and its tributary canyons, as well as Mesa Verde, be reserved as a national park in order to preserve the cliff dwellings. He would continue to write letters over the years, pushing the idea of making this a national park. That same year, activist Virginia McClurg began her decade-long fight to designate the national park. And while this push for a national park declaration is going on, Baron Gustav E. Nordenskold of the Academy of Sciences in Sweden visited the park in 1891. Using painstaking field methods for his time, he excavated, sketched, and photographed numerous sites. He's actually credited by many as being the first scientist to visit Mesa Verde. He collected around 600 items, which were then sent to Sweden and now reside in the National Museum in Helsinki, Finland. His book on the subject titled The Cliff Dwellers of the Mesa Verde was the first extensive examination and photographic record of all the cliff dwellings. The decade-long fight to declare the national park finally takes place in 1906 when the Ute exchanged their Mesa Verde reservation lands for other land in southwest Colorado. Because this was no longer reservation land, and it now belonged to the United States government, this freed up President Theodore Roosevelt to sign the legislation taking the land to create the park on June 29, 1906. This is the first ever national park of its kind, and only the sixth national park to be designated in the United States. The site was open to the public in 1910, allowing tourists and archaeologists to visit. About a decade later, in 1922, the Chapin Mesa Archaeological Museum was then built and is now one of the oldest museums in the United States National Park System. It contains galleries of artifacts from the ancestral Puebloans, including ceramics, jewelry, and even sandals. Further lands were then later added to the park in 1976, and then, of course, in 1978, the park was declared one of the first original World Heritage Sites. So then in more recent history, in 2003 and 2004, there were massive forest fires brought on by drought that burned thousands of acres of National Park. But thank heavens, the fires left the dwellings undamaged. Currently, the process of regrowth is well underway. Finally, in 2006, after 100 years, Mesa Verde National Park celebrated its 100th year anniversary. As part of this celebration, all Native American human remains and associated grave goods that were excavated and in the park's collection were reburied. This ceremony was a result of 12 years of consultation with the park's 24 associated tribes and was performed by both park staff and the Hopi tribe. Due to the sense of nature of the event and out of respect for the tribes, of course, the reburial was closed to the general public and took place in an undisclosed park location. I'm so happy that this happened because you hear about all of the sort of bad stuff that ends up happening in the history of the Native Americans and the U.S. government. To finally get this one little bit of closure feels really good to me. I love that. This site feels like an open-air museum. There are just so many artifacts and unique buildings. And I want to circle back to what you were saying before, Keith. I want to talk a bit more about what the government is doing to try to protect the site. Since Teddy Roosevelt established Mesa Verde as a national park, 
Many of the preservation projects that were originally established in the early 1900s continue over 100 years later and will continue into the future. This site is huge and very expensive to keep up. Certain parts of the park are actually closed off or offer limited access to the public because they're having trouble keeping up with paving roads, building new infrastructure, maintaining the archaeological sites, and ensuring trails are being maintained. All of this needs to be done frequently, primarily building stabilization at the moment. The Cliff Palace dwelling, for example, actually needs to be secured because it is literally slipping into the canyon and it isn't Humpty Dumpty. If it falls into the canyon, it is gone for good. You are not piecing that back together. Another example are the pipelines for the water. This is a rural area and the water comes from a distance. As a result, the pipes need to be upgraded. Doing this research frustrated me a little bit given Mesa Verde brought in $62 million in revenue from visitors in 2021. So this should be a federal funding priority. I am always going to proudly get on my soapbox. National park repair funding needs to be advocated for more readily. Yeah, so I completely agree. Abigail, now that you've talked about the history and all of that, want to share some information for anyone interested in actually traveling there? Sure. So in terms of transportation to Mesa Verde, your best bet is to fly into Denver International Airport and then drive or take a connecting flight from Denver to Cortez Municipal Airport and rent a car or RV. There are hotels inside the park and a campground. Off property, there are a couple of chain hotels within 10 miles of entrance. There is a gas station and six restaurants within the park as well where you can get anything from burgers and fries to more upscale wild game and organic produce-based dishes. In terms of the cost to visit the park, you have to purchase either a daily or annual entrance pass, both which are inexpensive. There are also days you can enter for free, so check the National Parks Service website in advance of your trip. The park is technically always open, except for major holidays like Christmas and Thanksgiving, Although some areas are only open between the hours of 8 a.m. sunset, such as certain trails. I cannot emphasize enough that there are so many things to do on site. And just to name a few, you can hit the Visitor and Research Center. You can take a self-guided tour of the museum, hike some of the trails, go to the Cliff Palace, and you will be able to take extraordinary videos and photos no matter where you go. You can take a cliff dwelling tour with park rangers as well. There are also performances put on by the Pueblos and other Native American tribes affiliated with the park. This site is also known for stargazing, as it was declared the world's 100th international dark sky park. In addition, it is an incredible site for bird watching and is a hot spot again for photographers. So bring your binoculars and cameras. Hey, Abigail. I have actually... Got a bird watching joke. Want to hear it? No, thanks. Too bad. So, a raven, this is a science joke, by the way, a raven has 17 primary wing feathers known as pinions, but a crow only has 16. So, the difference between a crow and a raven is only a matter of a pinion. <sighs> All right, back to it. So, like I said before, I'm actually really proud of the United States park system. 
It is amazing that there's so much to do and see. It really is. On that note, you reminded me of something I wanted to bring up. When you're on property, know that cell phone service is somewhat limited. So screenshot or bring a paper copy of your park pass in case you aren't able to access your email in the park. Also, be careful of animals and stay in groups when hiking in case you get injured. It could be hard to place an outbound call if you need help. These are great tips. So um, what's the weather like? And I'm also curious how many visitors they get annually or even if they get a lot of crowds. I know there have been years where there were so many people who tried to visit on a specific day in the past that they were actually turning them away at the entrance. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that continues to be somewhat of an issue. So the best times of year to visit in terms of crowds and more mild weather is spring and fall. Average temperatures during the summer are in the mid-80s Fahrenheit, which would make a midday hike pretty brutal. Over 563,000 people visited in 2018, according to the National Park Service. Montezuma County is the county that the park resides in, and that population itself is very small. The U.S. Census shows a little over 26,000 or so people as of 2021. So despite a small population surrounding the area, it's clear it's a popular vacation destination. So Abigail, I know that your favorite section of these podcasts comes towards the end, and they're the conspiracy theories and paranormal activity. So what did you find out? Ah, but you forgot that I also love true crime. I figured there would be all sorts of folklore stories or paranormal activity like UFO sightings surrounding most national parks, especially ones that have such a rich history like Mesa Verde. However, I'm going to focus on a true story or what might be a true crime story. I'm going to talk about Mitchell Dale Staling, whose story you may have briefly heard about on the news. Mitchell was a hiker who disappeared in the park in June of 2013. The day he went missing, it was incredibly hot, and his family noted he went without water, but he did have a cell phone. He went out on a trail around 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon, and witnesses report seeing him on the trail, but he never came home. Authorities believe something happened around or after 7 p.m. that night because they do know he accessed his voicemail. After that, in terms of cell phone tracking, it was radio silence. For two weeks, they did an exhaustive search where they even brought in rope teams, which for those of you who don't know, are experts who basically careen off the side of cliffs to see if someone maybe fell into a crevice or just over the side of a ledge. Since the area he was hiking had ledges and cliffs, they thought that maybe he could have fallen between rocks, where rangers might not have seen him unless they got closer. Also, his wife noted that she was worried that he might have gotten lost. I mentioned it before, certain areas of the park aren't well maintained, and I guess some of the signage is kind of confusing or wearing away. And that's making it hard to read for hikers. And she, she thought maybe he got turned around. I mean, they even brought in search animals and they didn't pick up a scent. And they reviewed areas of the park that aren't even open to travelers. They were also trying to do this all fairly quickly because it gets really cold at night, even during the summer sometimes. 
I used to travel to Denver for work and I always joke that I never knew how to pack because it would be 80 degrees Fahrenheit in February and then 20 degrees in October. Colorado weather feels completely random to me. But as a result, they needed to find him quickly. If he had no food, water, or proper clothing, searchers were worried he would freeze to death before they could find him. Well, I mean, it's sad, but hikers do go missing. How is this abnormal or true crime related? Because on September 17th of 2020, his body was found by a hiker over seven years later. An anonymous caller reported finding his remains in a distant part of the park that wasn't even supposed to be accessed by the public. So how did this person find him then? Great question. I mean, it's possible they just broke the law and went on a trail they weren't supposed to be on. But his body was found over four miles away from where he was last seen. It was hard for authorities to positively identify him with DNA and all of that, but his IDs were found, so it's probably safe to assume it's him. So, authorities say they don't think foul play was involved, but again, I guess it was hard to tell because of animals scavenging the remains. What makes this bizarre is that while this area was off limits, it was an area that was thoroughly searched in the weeks after he went missing, not just by people on the ground, but via helicopter teams as well. I mean, how did they not find his remains until seven years later? So I'll say this again. Um, Weird situation, but why would you think this could be murder? I mean, I think that's what you're hinting at, right? Yeah, I was building up to that. So this will probably come up in future episodes too, so I'm glad you asked. Basically, there has always been a thought that serial killers use national parks as both a way to find victims and as a dumping area, which, if you think about it, makes sense, since it's lots of secluded spots, caves, etc. By the time you find a body, it's often scavenged by animals, like I mentioned before, so it would be tough to produce much DNA-based evidence for testing. And 5 to 10 people go missing in this park alone annually, so there have always been whispers, again, it might be the work of a local serial killer. Okay, lesson learned. Don't hike alone. Although, I think that's a lesson for anywhere in the world, not just the national parks. Um, so, I love the national parks, as I mentioned before, and I can't wait to go visit Mesa Verde. I knew so little about this before I started, and I think that's just going to be such an amazing place to go see. So thanks for listening to Global Treasures Podcast. If you want to support the show, You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, a little shameless plug here. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please, please, please leave us a review with feedback and share with your networks. Reviews raise our ratings, which helps others find the podcast. And we've had a really good positive trend lately that we want to keep going. See you next time.